When it comes to investing, retirement, taxes, healthcare, and estate planning, the decisions you make today can greatly affect the quality of life for you and your loved ones tomorrow. What you need is straight and unbiased information on the most important issues you'll face when planning for your retirement and financial future. Good news. You found Premier Retirement Radio with Jeff Fogan. Jeff is the founder of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management, and he's been guiding people financially and into retirement for 30 years. So get ready for an hour of the most comprehensive financial information on the radio. Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan. And now here's Jeff Vogan and Jeff Shade. Thank you so much. Welcome to Premier Retirement with Jeff Vogan, the radio show that gives you the straight talk and honest answers you need to help you reach your wealth management and retirement goals through smart investing and careful planning. My name is Jeff Shade, and as always, I'm just here to ask the questions, but of course, the words of wisdom and solid advice, well, they come from the other Jeff in this program. It's Jeff Vogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Hey, Jeff, how's the weekend treating you so far? So far, so good. It's always good to be here with you and the listeners and uh, start off the weekend. Yeah, me too. And of course, always glad to be with our listeners here in the greater Tucson area. We've got so much to talk about every week in the program, Jeff. And we always start off with current events because I really like to get your take on things. And we were talking off the air. You're a different kind of financial advisor. I think a lot of advisors go to work and, you know, they put you into that stock bond portfolio where they sell you an annuity and so forth. But when they're done, they go home and watch you know, reruns of Seinfeld or something like that. That is not what you do. You really study this stuff because it's quite evident in your commentary at the beginning of the shows. Well, it's fascinating to me for uh, anything. I mean, I mean, to start with, my dad was kind of a historian. He, I remember, you know, anytime there'd be an event in our lives, he'd sit us down and tell us a history of why something was going to happen or why we do things the way we do it. It's all about history. So, you know, I, I do look at history and I, you know, while some people try to twist history and make cases for certain things, say, oh, well, you know, on average, the market is up seven out of 10 years, so we might as well stay in it. Well, when the price earnings ratio is 30, it's not up seven out of 10 years, you know? So there's, there's a lot of things that you can look back and say, you know, when the yield curve is inverted, when does the recession usually happen? It usually happens after the Fed starts lowering interest rates. You know, maybe that's why they stopped lowering the idea of lowering interest rates. They know that history shows that that's when the recessions occur. They didn't want one during election year. Maybe they wanted to kick the can down the road and try to somehow fake it out by doing these backdoor uh, QE programs or something. But this is all fascinating to me. And I can talk about it because, you know, I look at what's happened over the last, well, since they've been really keeping track of this since the mid 50s. So we've got, you know, 70, almost 80 years of, uh, you know, track record that we can look at even current markets and we can go back even farther than that. And, you know, see average rates return cycles, know that cycles always repeat. You know, I think if we don't have a good view of history, we're going to just kind of go blind. And of course, you know, the news media tries to make us fly by the seat of our pants because it seems like that's what they are. They're just telling us what the advertisers are telling them to say. So there's a lot of, I would say, kind of propaganda type things that we hear in the news, mostly to prop up the market rather than to say, you know, this cycle has got some issues and it makes the risk extremely high right now. But, you know, if you look at the people that are investing in stock markets the days they go up or when NVIDIA comes out with earnings and the market goes you know, crazy for a day or two. And then settles back down. You know, who's driving that? Well, I don't know. It's just kind of emotions and whims. It doesn't seem like, yeah, I don't know, a lot of history and thought goes into that. It uh, seems to be market manipulation at its best when companies will come out with their earnings and they're a little higher than expected, even though they're not stellar, but they're higher than expected. And all of a sudden the stock gaps up 20 or 30%. You know, that's stock manipulation and that's banks trying to, you know, sucker people in. It's interesting. Stocks will gap up and then they'll slowly kind of trend downwards. And then you find out that the, uh, 
owners of the company like Jeff Bezos did when Amazon gapped up, you know, sold six or eight billion dollars worth of the stock. You know, Jamie Dimon uh, has even sold JP Morgan stock after they had a just a huge quarter last quarter, probably from trading uh, NVIDIA stock and other things and their own stock. So if we look at history and see that, you know, when things like this happen, like the gap ups and like the manipulation getting so focused on maybe just a few stocks and somehow making it drive the market, you know, we can look at history and say, you know, when has these times happened before? Well, happened like in the 29 crash, euphoria was you know at its best and the greed cycle was at its peak. You know, we had that in the dot coms when the dot bombs were just about to bust and we're seeing the same type of trends now. So, you know, when I when I see what they're doing, you know, how to uh, and, and trying to cover, you know, what's really happening with, oh, it'll be a soft landing or oh, things are better than we think. Bidenomics is working, which we know it isn't. Inflation's really not that high. And well, ask somebody that's uh, trying to feed a family of uh, four or five kids, like my uh, some like one of my daughters is. Right. And right. Uh, most of my kids all have uh, my kids all have kids, and you know I know that they're pinched a lot more than they used to be. They don't do as many fun things as they used to do because you know it's all about food and survival first, and it's costing more to do things. So yeah, you know, yeah, we can see what's happening. We can hear the crap that's coming off the news and the radio and all the cheerleading uh, to Wall Street, but it's really you know you know for them. Not necessarily, yeah. So we have to, you know, approach it with uh, a lot of caution. And we have to look at history, I think, to give us the perspective that we need. There's a lot of people that, you know, I had a, a guy that mentioned, you know, why were we in short-term bonds when I looked at the perspectives as it says the average return was only like 1.8%. I said, you're looking at 2022 year-end results. You know, since then, they've been creeping up from 1% or 2% to 4 or 5 5.5% on short-term bonds. The three months is, I think, 5.4% a couple of days ago. So, you know, you have to keep things in perspective. It's like, okay, great. Well, we're, we're going to deal in the here and now. We can make 54 today. I mean, I don't care what it was two years ago. We're in different times now. Yeah, two years ago, I wouldn't have been buying bonds. I would have been buying something else. But it would also have been based on, you know, the history and the, the circumstances that were going on at that time. So again, we have to be careful. We have to be, you know, smart about how we approach the market, especially when things see so skewed to so few stocks right now, so overvalued when it comes to price earnings ratio, so much euphoria when a stock barely beats earnings or beats earnings or says, oh, we think we'll have a good month. I mean, you know, early this week we had, I think it was Norwegian Cruise Lines or one of the big cruise companies says, hey, uh, you know, we think there's a, a, an increasing demand for cruises. We think we'll have a great quarter. Well, no kidding. And, the uh, you know, it's kind of cruise time right now in the wintertime. Everybody wants to go and cruises to the Mediterranean, different places where the climate's a little bit more temperate. I mean, the only cruises going on in the summertime, well, there's a lot of cruising going on in the summertime, like to Alaska and stuff. But, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's kind of an uptick in the in, in the cruise time. But all of a sudden there's this euphoria about, oh my gosh, you know, the cruise lines, let's buy them and let's pump them up. You, know, you had NVIDIA two weeks ago. You have so many different things are just being hyped that it uh, it does give give me at least pause to look at this market uh, in a very uh, a very cautious way. And, and I think you've seen that. But a lot of that, again, it goes with history. When have these times happened before? You know, when's the last time the government was using uh, or anybody in the Fed and any, or Treasury was using terms like soft landing? You know, anytime the word soft landing has been used in history, it's been followed by a hard landing. Well, that's kind of scary if you know history. Well, if you don't, you just go, oh, well, today they say it's a soft landing. Well, that sounds good. Let's just uh, keep going like we're doing. And, you know, when it comes to a soft or a hard landing, guess who wins? It's usually the banks and the brokerage firms that get out first. And we get left held in the bag and think, oh, well, what happened? I thought they said it was going to be a soft landing. Well, the bottom line is, if you know history, you can make better decisions or at least be prepared so that when those things happen, you're not caught blindsided. And Jeff, uh, we've always heard on these financial programs that past performance is not indicative of future results. So as that applies to history, I see that equities over the past almost 100 years have been up 78%. 
Is that always the case, though? I mean, can we look at something like that as an individual situation and say, well, they've been up for a hundred years. Haven't there been five or 10 year periods where equities were not up? And should you really look at the past for really predicting future performance? Yeah, I think when you buy stocks at a fair value, that's where that 73% of the time from that fair value point in time is going to play out. When you buy at the height of the market, you know, if you wait 100 years, you're still going to get 75 of those years are probably going to be good years. You know, nine out of 10 of those decades, maybe eight out of 10 of those decades might be decent decades. But, you know, we had the lost decade of the 2000 to the 2010 where there wasn't a lot of QE and there wasn't a lot of manipulation until the uh, 2008 crash, which, you know, got us uh, to the end of 2010, at least at break even for the decade. But that was the lost decade because with two crashes of 50% and five to seven years to return back to the normal um, height of the, the prior highs, you know, it, it, it took a while and there was a lost decade. There was zero percent returns in that 10 year period. Why would that happen in that decade? Well, at the beginning of that decade or at the end of the prior decade, we were at all-time highs. We were at all-time euphoria. We were at all-time greed factors. I mean, the greed index, when people just want to get in the market because they're afraid of missing out and, you know, the stocks are getting pumped and, you know, hyped by uh, news media or by Wall Street, especially back in the 2000 crash. Remember, they were saying, you know, everything's going to the moon if it has dot com on the end of it. Uh, don't have to worry. There's tons of cash and tons of upside. And, you know, we're in a new market. It's never going to be the same. And uh, it's never going back to the old days where we had market corrections and crashes. I mean, really? I mean, what kind of person would tell you that? Well, somebody that's trying to, you know, look after their own pocketbook and not yours. Well, that's what Wall Street is. They are their own money machine. They're not looking after us. We want to get on the ride and be the pawns in their game to where, you know, the game's more interesting for them. You know, we can do that. And by the way, if you have a long-term horizon, seven out of 10 years is pretty good. I don't think I'd be putting all my, if I'm not already in the market, I wouldn't be getting out of safe stuff and going all in the market right now. If we were going to just have a certain portion of our portfolio that's uh, riding the market long term, then, you know, we ride it long term and we don't worry about it. And we don't use that money for our daily bills and, you know, monthly uh, livelihoods. But we use that for our long term perspective money because long term the market does outperform. But, you know, I hope that, you know, if you do have a stock portfolio, it wasn't a stock portfolio you, you purchased just recently, because I think, you know, we're going to look at, we look at such a small breadth of stocks that are actually performing or outperforming compared to the four or five that, you know, are driving the entire market. In fact, so far, year-to-date growth in the S&P, year-to-date growth in the S&P is, I think, somewhere between six and 8%, depending on the day you look at it. But four stocks have contributed to every bit of that, and that's Amazon, Meta, Microsoft, and NVIDIA. I mean, Apple's down, Tesla's down, and Google's actually down, kind of break even to down. So we've got three out of the Magnificent Seven that aren't pulling their weight, and four are pulling the weight. Year-to-date earnings in less than two months, or barely two months, I should say. So we've got two months under our belt. That's a sixth of the year, and, and you know that's an annualized return of 24 to 30%. I just don't think four stocks can have anything left in them to produce that kind of results for the overall S&P 500. We've got to get the economy in two, a lot more of the pistons run. It's like an engine, an eight-cylinder engine with one piston running, but you know it's such an important piston. It's the biggest one in the engine and somehow it drives the car and you were thinking, well, shoot, it's still driving. You know, we need we need to get all eight pistons moving before this economy gets back on solid ground. And I think what'll happen first is there's got to be a reset. That happens with recession. That happens with, you know, market corrections and even crashes where, you know, the average price earnings ratio in the 30 range goes back down to 15 range, which means the stock market overall is priced at about double what his, history says it should be. Well, does that mean you uh, you shouldn't pay double? Well, you know, you might have some limited upside uh, between now and the time it corrects, but 
100% of the time in the last 75 years, markets like ours have corrected. And, you know, it's it's been more times worse than soft. It's been, been, been harsher than soft more times than not. So, you know, I would, I would say, you know, keeping all those things in perspective, you know, we've got to look at the present market. So, so I guess, you know, in, in all this, the bottom line is, you know, you can't go on a 100-year average and, and assume that every year is going to be that. For example, the stock market, if you look at 100 years, is averaged like 10.5% per year if you count, uh, you know, all the upside in the market. Now, we understand that indexes are typically manipulated and you kick the bad stocks out and put the good stocks in. So maybe it's a little bit less than that. But you don't have 10% every year. Sometimes you have a negative 30% year. Sometimes you have a positive 25% year. Sometimes you have a 5 or a 10 or 20% year, somewhere in between there, but it's never exactly the same. So we also have to look at each decade. Every decade doesn't mean you're going to have seven out of 10 up years. In the last decade of the 2000 to 2010, we had five ups and five downs. So, you know, and a couple of mediocres. And we had some really good years within those years, but the the bad years kind of uh, unfortunately took all the pizzazz out of the good years. And, and, you know, I think when we look at that, we can say, you know what, would you rather be making 5% and not losing money in the next correction? Or especially if it's safe money that you need to retire on, or would you rather, you know, keep swinging for the fences, know that it's going to probably correct. We don't know when. Maybe we can make 5 or 10 or 20% more before the election. And then after the election, they'll let it fall. I don't know. But the, the bottom line is there will come a day when uh, pricing of the stock market is a lot lower than it is today based on what we're willing to pay for stocks. You know, unless you're a day trader and you want to play these swings, you know, if you're a long-term investor, be either a long-term investor or, you know, if you're a, an asset protector, we still want upside when it's more probable than when it's not especially if you're trying to be protecting assets for retirement. So again, that's the approach that I'm taking. I'm not dogging on anybody that wants to be in you know, NVIDIA long-term. I think long-term will probably be a great stock. It just might take a while before it gets fairly valued. It might have some uh, rocky roads ahead. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But I also think that we shouldn't put all our eggs in base the entire market on one stock like we did a week and a half ago You know when they came out with earnings. So you know, history, again, will prove that although average are great long-term, if you've got a 100-year long-term outlook, then invest for 100 years. You're going to probably get those averages again. But, you know, if you're looking at the next five or 10 years, you've got to also look what the markets can do in a five and 10 year period as well and, and uh, you know, invest accordingly. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and Mesa here in our radio program, Premier Retirement. And it's obvious that Jeff studies the trends and uses the information that he has to put you into a retirement portfolio in which you'll not only survive, but you'll also thrive. So if you'd like to sit down with Jeff, talk about your individual situation, how the current economy affects you, we invite you to call and get your no-cost, no-obligation Premier Retirement Roadmap. Very simple to do. Call 520-780-9059. You can make that call this week, and if you want, leave your name, your telephone number. Shelly will give you a call back early next week, set you up with an appointment with Jeff. Just a friendly conversation at no cost, no obligation. It's not going to cost you a dime to get the answers that you need to put you on a path towards a prosperous retirement. Once again, make that call this weekend, 520-780-9059. You can also request your plan online at premret.com. That's P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, I'm seeing a headline right now in front of me. Economists see a brighter outlook for 2024. Expect this year to be characterized by faster growth, shrinking inflation, and healthy job creation. This is a far cry from the widespread fears of a recession that marked 2023. So let's talk about consumer sentiment right now. Should recession be completely off the table? 
You know, I, I can't see how it is. Again, if we go back to history, I don't see how it can be off the table. Recession's not necessarily, you know, sometimes we have a recession. It doesn't necessarily even affect the market. I have a feeling that the market's actually going to probably be the input to what causes a recession, that and the Fed trying to manage interest rates and manage inflation because inflation's still higher than it should be. You know, if we look at what's really happening, I mean, the cost, the producer price index went up uh, really high a few weeks ago. The consumer price index was on its trend up again, not down. So they're not getting inflation under control. And that typically means rate increases. Rate increases are bad for the market. It's bad, especially for tech companies. Even though last year we saw, you know, increasing interest rates continue even after, you know, the beginning of the year and somehow the market went up. But we know that was market manipulation with brokers and banks that, you know, the Fed bailed them out of their banking situation by giving them a pass and a bunch of free money to invest. I think uh, most of that went into stock buybacks for their own companies is why the uh, large bank financial, if you look at the financial ETFs with all the large banks in it, it did very well last year. Even the regional banks did okay after they got the bailout. Although, you know, I've heard a, a stat and I've got to look into this and maybe I shouldn't even say it if it's not true, but I heard it from a good source or have heard it a couple of times that more banks have failed since a year ago, since that government bailout than did in the 08 crash. There's been a lot of small banks go out of business or get merged or get gobbled up or have to refinance and basically restructure their existence either because they're gone or had to fold into another company. So there's been a lot of bank turmoil that we haven't heard about. And the government's been funneling money to that sector of our economy in order to basically not look bad, right? So that money's just been going into the market. It has not been going into loans. We know nobody's buying houses, housing are way down. And the people that are buying houses, many of more now than ever doing cash buys because they don't want to pay seven or 8% on a mortgage. Mm-hmm. Not only that, they can't afford it. Now, I mean, people aren't buying cars anymore because the interest rates are too high. So there's a lot of things that aren't looking good economically. You know, we see all these massive layoffs that uh, big companies are doing, tens of thousands of people. And then we have this number of uh, job creation. And, you know, I I hate to be cynical (laughs) about our government. But, you know, they, they, they come up, ADP comes up last, uh, when, they, when they did the jobs report last month, ADP comes up with about 110,000 jobs. Now, they, they, they manage so much payroll that, you know, their statistics should be pretty dang accurate. And then you have the government, uh, what's his name, Bernstein or whatever, that uh, was a, like the economic advisor in the White House comes out, no, 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 uh, they, they were really 330,000 new jobs, not just 110. Like, where do you get that number? And, you know, supposedly, uh, yeah, that, now we're hearing that, you know, 90% or more of these jobs that the government's creating are for, you know, non-U.S. born people and, you know, basically low paying jobs, government jobs. So I wonder if they're counting illegals uh, when they get a $10,000 gift card as a job. You know, I don't know what the deal is, but how are they playing these numbers up and how is this really helping the economy? It looks good and sounds good, but Really, it's still the rich getting richer. The people that have money are still having money. They're still doing well in the market. There's some people that are trying to day trade. Maybe they're making money, maybe they're not. But I know that you know, there's probably at least half the population that's having trouble even contributing to their 401k and dollar cost averaging into this market and whatever we get in the future because they're too busy buying diapers and food for their babies and gas for their car and even maybe a new car if they wear one out. And everything just costs too much. And so there's a lot of pressure on the economy. I don't see how we don't have some sort of a reset unless there's been so much money printed that the rich people still you know, find enough to make the market look good. But even still, I think there's a lot of what's happening in the economy right now that spells recession. I think we're kind of in that because, you know, spending is receding for a lot of the uh, population of our country right now. And, you know, from the standpoint of uh, when we end up having massive layoffs because finally the bubble breaks or the bubble pops. And by the way, we're in the biggest bubble that I can even see on a 
stock market chart. If you see the bubbles, the last couple of bubbles where the stock market uh, went up a little too fast and it popped and got down to a reasonable level, then it popped again in the, the 08 crash. And then it tried popping in uh, 2018 after the bubble just went zooming ahead with all this quantitative easing free money. We've got so much money out there and such a big bubble that I just don't see how if that bubble pops, there isn't some sort of a reasonable amount of pain out there. And I hope it's not pain that uh, my clients have to endure. I hope it's not pain that my kids have to endure. So hopefully not pain that uh, anybody I know that I care about has to endure. But uh, somebody will endure it. And it's going to be those people that just uh, believe whatever they hear on the news or don't care or, you know, aren't really savvy on, you know, history and what really happens with bubbles. And the fact is, so far, every bubble has popped so far. And I don't know when it will be. Could be next week. It could be next year. I don't think it'll be too much longer. I don't think uh, about a year is about as long as I can even imagine this thing going. And I think that's only through manipulation and, you know, uh, backdoor bailouts by the Fed to banks and things like that. But you know, that's all coming to an end, you know, coming this month, you know, in about a week or, or so, we've got big tranches of uh, bank money coming due to buy back all the, the loan, what was it called? The the bank savior program or save the bank program by the Fed, you know, money's got to be paid back by the banks. Now, I don't know if they'll kick the can down the road and give them another, uh, you know, freebie and let them out, let them off the hook. But if they hold true to the agreement, you know, banks are going to have to sell some of that stock they bought with that free money in order to pay uh, their debts back. There's also the money in the uh, overnight Fed funding repo fund, which they call it, is down to about a third of what it normally is. I think banks are using that instead of paying back the Fed. They're using it to invest because they think they can make more money in the market than if they pay the Fed 5% to use that money. There's a lot of things going on behind the scenes that uh, are, you know, a little concerning to me. Not, Not a little, a lot. I talk about them on the radio all the time. So again, you know, you've got the manipulation by the government, you've got uh, bailout programs, you've got an election coming up. I mean, there's a possibility that we won't see a, 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 you know, a recession before that, but there's still going to be some pain. I think there's going to still be some pullbacks in the market that we have to be concerned about. I would say if by the time the primaries are done this summer and, uh, you know, we're going into uh, the election, I kind of have a feeling things might stabilize and it might be smart to, you know, take a few positions in some of the sectors that are performing. You know, until after the election, right after the election, sometimes the market is good too. So the election doesn't necessarily have to mean a stock market crash. If we look at Japan right now, they finally got their index back up to where it was back in 1989 for a long time. Speaking of a recession, their stock market, their Nikkei peaked in 1989 and it finally got back there again. Yet they're going in through a GDP crisis where they're not growing anymore. You know, their population is so old that they really don't produce as much as they used to. Our population with the baby boomers is just like they are, only about 20 years behind. So we may go through the same type of a thing where the market just kind of stagnates. We go through some stagflation. And even though Japan right now is going through what, you know, is considered by every economic standard a recession, the market is still going up. So, you know, but their market is also really fairly valued. Shoot, I'm looking at ETFs on Japan funds and the price earnings ratio is like 10 or 11% because they become very efficient given, you know, the stuff that they're doing over there. Well, we're not efficient. The fact is, is I think we can have a recession without a stock market crash. And maybe we can even have a stock market crash without a recession, or a recession. but I don't think that's going to go right now because there's too many factors, too many bubbles that are popped that end in recession. There's also our market is way out of whack. So I don't think our economy can say, well, Japan got through, they got a bad, uh, they got a recession, but the market's still doing great. Let's just stay in the market. I think it's going to be different for us. We've got to look at the different things that are happening here, but also, you know, understand that recession and stock market crash don't always go hand in hand. I just think that this time they probably will. Jeff, just a couple more minutes left in this segment. Let's talk about interest rates. I understand that the Fed now is not expecting to cut interest rates until uh, summertime sometime. 
Well, I, I think, the, remember, they only said they were going to do it three times, and the banks all came out and said, oh, we expect six or seven. So it's all been a fake head fake anyway. The fact is, is with with inflation going up, they can't lower them at all. The only reason they would lower them is to you know make a case for maybe a, a White House bid by who's in the power. Honestly, I see interest rates needing to go up still, not down. And it scratches my head that they think they're going to go down. And I think the only reason they do go down is if uh, we do start hitting that uh, recession, we start getting into that recession situation. We're talking with Jeff Ogan of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management here in Tucson and Mesa. And we've been talking about current events, the state of the economy, whether or not we're going to have a recession, what interest rates are going to be doing. If all of this prompts you to have some questions about how it affects you and your retirement plan, I invite you to give Jeff a call there at Premier Retirement. You have a chance to sit down with Jeff, the very guy that you're hearing on the radio right now, and ask your particular questions to get the answers that you need to make intelligent decisions about your retirement planning. It's not going to cost you a dime to do this. Now, that number to call, 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. Go ahead, give it a call this weekend. Do it right now, if you will. Leave your name, your telephone number. Shelly will give you a call back on the next business day. Set you up with an appointment with Jeff to have that conversation. Again, totally complimentary. There is no judgment, and he's not going to you know, put the thumb down on you. There's not going to be any sales pitch there. This is purely informational. 520-780-9059 is the number to call for yours. You can also request it online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, time for a break. When we come back, we've got listener questions and more when Premier Retirement continues right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's most stimulating talk. You can't start a trip you've never taken without a plan. And you can't start your retirement journey without a comprehensive plan to get there safely. To request your no-cost Premier Retirement Roadmap, call 580-780-9059 or request it online at premret.com. Now back to more Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan and Jeff Shea. Thank you so much for making us a part of your weekend. You're listening to Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan, founder and president of Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. We've had a great conversation here in the first half of the show about economic indicators at this point, whether or not recession is still on the table. We've talked about interest rates, inflation, just a lot of things. And if you have missed that part of the program, remember, we're also a podcast. Go to wherever you get your podcast. Search for Premier Retirement with Jeff Ogan. You'll find this show and many of our past shows so that you can stay on top of your journey towards a prosperous retirement. Jeff, in this section, as always, we have listener questions. We'll kick it off this week. Barry is listening to us in Tucson, and Barry says, I have $1.5 million in my 401k and $1.1 million in my IRA. I'll be 73 in 2024 and must start RMDs. A financial planner suggested that I purchase a million and a half dollars in annuities and invest the other one million dollars in stocks and bonds. Should I take my advisor's suggestion? Does this sound like good advice to you? Well, it sounds like you just got somebody selling you stuff. I don't know what the whole overall plan is. And that, I could be wrong. I mean, maybe there is a plan that involves all that. But, you know, is your plan to take the uh, annuities because you want a steady income for the rest of your life instead of having RMDs on all that money starting at about $100,000 a year is what it'll be uh, right out of the gate. And then, you know, going up for the rest of your life. So, I mean, annuities will stabilize that. You might also have a million dollars you want to put in stocks and bonds because you want to just leave them alone for the next 20 or 30 years and just see how big they can grow. And that can be your 
you know, home run money. And then you just use the annuities as principal protected accounts to uh, get those withdrawals from. So, you know, you're not ever locking in losses if the stock market plunges between December 31st of last year until the time you have to take your RMDs out. I'm saying a lot here, but there's a lot of things that I'm just thinking through that I would have to consider before I could even say, should you take advisor, uh, advice? I don't know what your other income is. If this is just what's left in your 401k and IRA because you've been spending it for the last 10 years since you retired 10 years ago, or maybe you retired yesterday, or maybe you're not even retired yet. I mean, if you're not retired yet, guess what? Your 401k, you don't actually even have to take uh, withdrawals from your 401k if you're still working. But I'm guessing that if you still have money in your 401k, you can't really do an annuity in a 401k generally. Um, if you are going to look at annuities, I would definitely look at fixed indexed annuities. I would not. I would look at something fixed. I, they have lower costs and fees associated with them. I would just run from anything variable. Not only are the fees high, but they're variable, meaning that they have downside uh, potential and you don't want any downside on the money that you have to take next year for your RMD. So I'm not opposed to, I guess, the really 30,000 foot question, but I'd like to drill down and get down to ground level here and find out what your goals really are. What other income you have? Are you relying on this money already for income? Or is this just one of these, oh my gosh, this is the suckiest thing I have to do is take this extra money from uh, my required minimum distributions for the rest of life, my life. And now I'm in a higher tax bracket forever paying 30 or 40% on my money that I have to take out that I don't need because I have all kinds of other assets paying me income. And I, I have to pay two or three times as much for my uh, Medicare insurance now than I used to. I mean, these are all questions that you know might be you know killing you to think about. And it may be smarter. I don't know if you're married or have a, a spouse that's younger than you, but you might even want to consider a LERP and a really accelerated withdrawal program where you can pay you know 25 or 30% taxes now on you know two and a half million dollars and never pay tax again and have hundreds of thousands of dollars a year coming in in tax-free income or just leave it alone and maybe have 10 million or so in death benefit eventually when you both pass away and you can give to your heirs. You know, it just kind of depends on the numbers and you know what your long-term goal is before I could ever say, is this a good advice? I don't know. I have to see the whole picture. I will tell you that I have clients that, you know, with two and a half million dollars in retirement funds, have used that allocation depending on, again, what they're supposed to, uh, what they want to do with it. I have other clients that put uh, out of 2.6 million, they'll put over $2 million in annuities because they like the safety or because they like guaranteed income that's level for the rest of their life. And you know, they just love what annuities can provide. So I do like annuities. I do like the right kind of annuities. And there's so many kinds of annuities out there that if you really want to get my opinion and know what I think, because I really can't give you one here on the radio, I don't have enough information. I'd be happy to talk to you, give you a second opinion, see if the annuities that you're getting presented uh, are right. And if you uh, don't have a plan and you'd rather, you know, I don't know how close you are to your financial advisor, if you just, you know, went to a seminar, met somebody, if you're still kind of kicking tires, be happy to, you know, show you how we do things and, you know, what would make our recommendation appropriate for you. And it would be long after after we spend some time together and build a plan and even see what your tax situation is going to be because of that plan. I don't know if any of that's been done. I hope it has. I just don't know that there's a lot of guys in town that are doing it quite the same. So I'm kind of assuming maybe not. You know, it's probably presumptuous of me to say. But uh, again, if you, you know, like what I've said in the past and you think it'd be worth, you know, kicking tires and having a second opinion, I'd be able to look at the whole picture and give you better advice. And as Jeff uh, said, Barry, I think the best advice is to give him a call there at Premier Retirement. And that telephone number, by the way, 520-780-9059. Take advantage of the opportunity to sit down with Jeff at no cost and obligation and have that question about your investments. And also, Barry, uh, expect that book to come in the mail, Retirement, The Road Ahead. Okay, next question. Jeff comes from William in Oro Valley, and he writes, Dear Jeff, I have just retired, and I've been diagnosed with brain damage and dementia. 
I woke up last year and suddenly could not spell or write legibly. No warning, no symptoms. I'm getting worse. So I want to protect my wife of 24 years and our finances. She'll get half my pension and she has an even better pension than I do. We have two long-term care policies. One is paid off and the other is 5% inflation adjusted with lots of positive writers on it. If I end up living a long time and use up my long-term care policies, currently valued at $600,000 and I have to go on Medicaid, will we have to sell our house to pay Medicaid? I don't want my wife to lose everything. Will an elder law attorney really help? I've heard mixed reviews. What's your opinion? You know, if you're retired and you've been married 24 years, I don't know if this was a second marriage, a late marriage, or your first marriage, and you're younger than I think. Um, you know, I, I'm sorry to hear the, about the, the brain damage and dementia. My father had a stroke and had brain damage and not really dementia, but in his 50s and had to retire. And it didn't work out well, obviously. But And I, I hope you're able to live a quality of life and whatever the remainder is, I hope you do well. You know, I know spending eight or 10 years in a nursing home or an Alzheimer's lockdown facility isn't going to be fun for anybody. I guess, you know, $600,000 may not be enough to cover that, but that sounds like a pretty large amount of money. As far as qualifying for Medicaid, it's a little tougher than you might think just because you're out of money. And again, I don't know if this was maybe a second marriage. If, if you and your spouse have kept separate accounts and it's all been sold in separate property, Medicaid can't touch her income or her assets you know, if you came in and kept things as sold and separate. If you bought houses and set up bank accounts as you know joint with righteous survivorship and all that kind of stuff in a community property state, or if you set them up as community property, you, know, you pretty much own each other's money and you own each other's problems with that money. So that would kind of uh, crawl through to her. Now, I don't know what a good pension yours is and what a good pension hers is, but if you make more than thirty or $40,000 a year, Medicaid won't even talk to you because you have too much income, according to them. I know the income that they disqualify you on is a lot less than the income that you would actually need to support a spouse at home and pay for yourself in a, in a nursing home. So I know it's not really fair, but again, Medicaid was created for the destitute. It seems like you're not destitute. So I have a hard time believing you'd get much help there and, and may even be wasting your money at a with an attorney. But an elder law attorney, maybe for, I know last time I sent somebody over to an elder law attorney because they were really deep into some problems. Mm -hmm. um, it was like eight or $10,000 just as a retainer. It probably cost $10,000 and took about a year, but they did wow. get some benefits that were much more than that. So I don't know if you call eight or $10,000 too much to pay when you might be saving tens of thousands of dollars or even hundreds of thousands of dollars or even an income stream that would support your wife. So you know, I would definitely say that you know, if you have some hard legal questions, my understanding of it is you're going to have a really hard time qualifying anyway. And by the way, you don't have to sell your house. If you have a spouse living, and I'm assuming because you've already been diagnosed with this uh, situation and you're trying to protect her, uh, she's probably younger and healthier than you are, probably outlive you. If they will not make her move out of a house. You can protect your home. You can protect a certain amount of income. You can protect a certain amount of assets through different kind of trusts. So you could set up something that would leave her maybe better off if you really think you're going to burn through that $600,000. There's also a what's called a five-year look back. If you wanted to give away or put money into home preservation trusts or actually protect all your assets right now, and if you, as long as you lived on your long-term care stuff and everything except your income was in a trust for her, you would probably make it through at least the five years, if you look back five years and you haven't had any assets, then then you would possibly qualify for Medicaid. So again, there's a lot of different ways we can look at this program. You know, I appreciate you being one not saying, oh, how can I hide all my assets so I can get on right. Medicaid tomorrow? At least yeah, you've got right. some insurance, you've done your best. And, mm -hmm. you know, Medicaid is really supposed to pick up where people have planned well that just end up in an unfortunate circumstance and don't make it. So, you know, bless your heart for trying to pay your way as best you can. If you do run out, I think that's what Medicaid should pick up the, uh, you know, the 
the gaps if they can. But look at look at all the options. But here's what I wouldn't do. I wouldn't wait till you're out of money and then have your wife go get an elder law attorney. If you've already been diagnosed, I would go down there and you know if you've got good pensions you've probably got good savings maybe you don't maybe you have good pensions and you don't have any savings maybe it was to that expense but i think it would be worth having somebody who's really good at elder law knowing what your options are to at least guide you and set up a plan and even a spend down plan where you have everything kind of gone out of your own personal estate for five years so that all you have to do is uh pay for your own uh, care from your uh, pension you know when you die she'll get half of it and that legitimately is hers they're not going to put a lien on the death benefit. They're not going to put a lien on her house if it's not yours. In other words, if you preserved it in a trust for her. So again, there are some ways you could probably uh, build some walls around your assets, but start early. Don't start late. William, thank you so much for that question. All the best to you, and we're sorry about your situation. We will send you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Okay, uh, Jeff, next question is a rather simple one. Donald in Rita Ranch writes, I'm 63, my wife is 62. My work history is a lot longer than my wife's. We're thinking of taking her Social Security early, then deferring mine as long as possible. Will we be penalized if we take hers while I'm still working? Absolutely not. You won't. Uh, Now, if she's 62, she's going to take a reduced amount of hers. So in other words, if hers was, let's say, $1,000 a month, you know, I mean, and she's 62 now, she'll be taken closer to about $700 a month if she decides to take it now. The nice part is if you're going to work another six or seven years, maybe you work till uh, 70 before you turn years on, at that point, you could, oh, actually, you can do it at 67 when you're full retirement age, you could turn years on for a minute, keep it all, but she could bump up to half of yours. Let's say yours is uh, $4,000 a month. Mm-hmm. Well, she could bump up to half of yours, which is 2000 a month, uh, full retirement age, but she would have to reduce it by the amount of reduction she took uh, before. So you know, maybe now she gets twelve or $1,400 a month instead of 700 but it still goes up considerably when she's able to take a spousal benefit. And as long as you have not applied, she is not eligible for a spousal benefit. In other words, she can take hers. She is not affected by, if she's not working, she is not affected or even if she is working, she has a limited amount of income she could get to keep all of her social security and it does not affect you or your future social security at all. It's a great way to uh, milk the program for every last dime you can, in my opinion. Or, you know, you might want to also consider the math depending on uh, how good a health you have and how many years you might live together. It might be smarter for, you know, her to wait to age 67 and get half of your full retirement amount, which would be much higher. It would be the, let's say 2,000, you get the 4,000. So, if that's the case, you have to just say, okay, how, what's my break-even point? And the other thing is, is, are you in a really high tax bracket based on your current work? You might make four or $500,000 a year, and maybe you don't want that extra money. But if you retire, you know, and you go back down to a 22 or 25% bracket, then it may be made more sense to have more money from Social Security, which by the way, at worst case right now is 15% tax-free and have, you know, less money uh, to pay Uncle Sam in taxes between now and then, especially on a little pittance of a Social Security paycheck that you don't need. But again, if you need that money to live and it's worth that extra few hundred bucks to pay some bills or to keep you in your house that you love or to, uh, you know, pay for gas because you have a long commute or whatever it is, it may make total sense for her to take it early and then uh, bump to half a years later. Donald, thanks for that question. Of course, we'll be sending you out Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. If you've got a question for us, send it in to us by going to our website, premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. 
click on the contact page there and send us your question. If we use it on the air, of course, you'll not only get the answer, but you'll also get Jeff's book, Retirement the Road Ahead. Once again, that website to get your question to us is primrat.com. If you'd rather call it into Shelly, you can do that by calling 520-780-9059, 520-780-9059. You can also use that number if you'd like to get your no-cost, no-obligation meeting with Jeff. A complimentary consultation. It's not going to cost you a dime. Once again, 520-780-9059. You can also request your complimentary consultation online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, many times in this program, we have talked about investment advisors using rules of thumb. And the one I want to talk about here that I hear often is, should retirees follow the 100 minus your age rule for stock allocation? First off, let's talk about rules of thumb. I mean, that's a real generalization. And it appears to me that most people are individuals. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting, too. You know, if you get audited by the SEC or regulators and stuff like that, they just love to put those rules of thumb. Well, that's outside of the rule of thumb. Well, the rule of thumb is the rule of thumb. Everybody's thumbs are different. You got a different thumbprint. Shoot, everybody is not the same. The fact is, is some people might want uh, zero risk. And by the way, bonds have risk. The bond market is down 18 or 20% from when it peaked out a couple years ago. The stock market went down, the stock market came back, the bond market didn't. They kept raising interest rates, which is kind of counterintuitive, but that's what happened. You know, back to NASDAQ, although uh, was flirting with its all-time high, I don't remember if it eclipsed it or not the last few days, but we're just finally getting back after almost two and a half years of down market. You know, do you want any money in stock if you're using it? You know, just because you're 70, does that mean you should have 30% in stock market? What if you don't want any risk? Well, uh, you don't have to. Or should you have 70% in the bond market? Well, that's not principal protected either. If interest rates go up, what do you do? You lose 10 or 15% and you're making 3% on the bonds. That's a counterproductive situation. In my opinion, there's two buckets of money. There's a stock and bond bucket, which the rule of thumb might apply to, but you need to decide what bucket or how much you want to fill that bucket with risk money, stocks, bonds, Cash isn't risky, but it's boring because it doesn't pay anything. Or principal protected accounts that are linked to indexes that can go up when the market does well and not do so bad when the market does bad and not lose money when the market doesn't perform it as badly. So, you know, what are the buckets of money? You need a bucket of money that is principal protected that you can count on income from, whether it's an annuity with income riders, income uh, guarantees, whether it's just a principal protected account that, you know, CDs, bless their hearts, are principal protected accounts as long as you don't pull your money out early. They haven't paid a lot uh, in a long time, but you can even ladder CDs or ladder bonds to where you, you know, pull them out without uh, worrying about the valuations losing money. But that's usually only about a two or three year, maybe at the most uh, type of proposition. Longer term annuity accounts can set you up and basically buy yourself a pension for the entire duration of your retirement where you get guaranteed income. In my opinion is, you know, what's a rule of thumb is you should not risk money that you can't afford to risk or money that you need to use for income purposes, period, even though they call bonds fixed income securities. Well, really fixed income fixed because they know what the percentage is on the put uh, on the amount of the bond, which is a thousand dollars. But it has nothing to do with how much that bond's worth if you ever needed to sell it to bail out of if you wanted to cash it in to pay some bills. Unless you can only live on the interest that you make. And, you know, for a long time, the bonds haven't paid enough interest to basically supplement anybody's lifestyle. That's why so much money's been flowing into the stock market because bonds haven't kept up. Now they're finally keeping up. If bonds uh, prices stay down and the interest stays up for a while, you know, maybe you'll do okay. But I don't think that's going to be a long-term situation. So again, the rule of thumb should be how much money can I not afford to lose? And do I have it in the right principal protected accounts to generate income, guarantee income, generate monthly paychecks to pay my bills, or at least not go 
down so that if I ever need a chunk of money or a little tranche out for this or that or the other to take a chunk for, you know, an emergency purpose, uh, heaven forbid, long-term care, or maybe even helping your kids out, you can take out of an account that's not down. I mean, anybody that had to liquidate money in 2022, you know, it was very unfortunate, right? I mean, they basically were forced to lock in a loss, even at the beginning and most of 2023, because it took a while for the market to, you know, climb back. And then it started falling again mid, mid-year. So, I mean, if you're taking money out of accounts that are down, you're locking in losses, that money never grows again. You locked in a loss. That's that's Warren Buffett's number one rule of investing is don't lose money. How do you don't lose money? You don't buy high and sell low. So the money that uh, you have risk on, you want to make sure it's money you don't need for those uh, purposes, income, emergencies, or even just the what ifs. I might want to take uh, money out and go on a vacation or, you know, buy an RV or, you know, some other silly thing that just comes into mind down the road. I mean, it could, doesn't have to be, you know, part of a plan. It could be just uh, kind of a whimsical thing, but you want places you can get money that aren't risky. So, you know, why would you have a rule of thumb? This is my retirement portfolio and Wall Street says I have to only have it in stocks and bonds. And so in order so we don't get in trouble and tell the people, uh, you know, that they have too much in stocks, uh, we'll just do this rule of thumb. Most people don't keep that rule of thumb anyway. Shoot, I see people all the time in their 70s or 80s that have 60 and 70% in stocks, and it's the flip the other way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, who's listening to the rules of thumb at all their other brokers or other advisors? Nobody. So, yeah, I just think it's funny that people who write articles will put stuff like that in print and make it sound like it's, you know, even relevant, because honestly, I don't think rules of thumb are. And I think that uh, rule of thumb may be a starting place for somebody who's thinking about their own retirement and risk tolerance, you know, a place to start thinking about things. But I think you need to go way, you need to dive way deeper to know what, you know, your risk tolerance really should be and consider other asset classes that Wall Street doesn't provide in order to protect your retirement. And unfortunately, those rules of thumb out there are used commonly by a lot of investment advisors. So let's talk about some of the alternatives to stocks and bonds. What are some of the alternatives and how would you decide actually what asset classes that someone should have in their portfolio based on their individual situation? Well, you know, I, I started out in this business as a stockbroker. All I did was pedal risk to everybody I could find on the phone that would give me a minute to talk to them. I'm now you know, dialing for dollars back in the old days. Right. And that's what a lot of people did. We sold stock and traded on commissions. And it was, it was kind of a weird scenario. But, you know, I realized that every time somebody got in, they always got in kind of at a deficit because there was commissions and ticket charges back in the 80s and 90s. And then you know, when the market started going more to an advisor base, then we got this fee-based thing. But bottom line is all I had in the brokerage world was stuff that had risk to offer. And that started making me sick, especially when I saw some retirees that didn't do well after losing some money. And they and I kind of took it to heart and said, you know, I'm kind of responsible for this because I didn't have the things that maybe they should have had to protect their assets. And then I heard about annuities and life insurance and some rich people were using it. It was a tax plan and income plan. And I got hit up by Prudential and MetLife and all these big companies. Hey, you should try the insurance business. So I did. I learned about insurance and there's safe features to insurance. There's tax benefits to insurance. It's a whole different world. And I'm thinking, gee, you know, this is a financial product. People in the insurance world, life insurance and annuities, that's a financial product. And it has a purpose for people to protect assets, to give some income, or to replace income on the case of a death benefit type thing. But even better than that, you can stuff life insurance with a bunch of cash and borrow against it instead of pull the money out. You know, that's kind of an interesting thing where you don't even have to pay tax on on money you borrow from your own cash storage that you have kind of like in your own tax-free bank. So I really like indexed annuities that have principal protection, 
the insurance companies have gotten so creative since I learned about insurance. Then I got kind of like fear of missing out. So I got into the dot-com bomb and started kind of rotating back into where I could blend both insurance for safe money, but still get some upside with the dot-coms. And then I got really excited about the dot-coms because we were in a whole new world. You know, Wall Street really pitched it well. And I got a little bit over exuberant, uh, I would say, with stock market investing and took some big hits right there at the end of the decade. And I learned again, whoa, these insurance products are pretty good. But during the 90s, when the, uh, the, the dot-coms were going crazy, insurance companies got creative and said, you know, we can do better than just give a fixed interest or four or five or 6%. We can take that money that we're making on the bond portfolio that secures this investment. And we can buy options on the indexes that are going to the moon. And we can, you know, protect a person's principal, use the money we make on interest and double or triple it. Maybe we can make them 10 or 15% in a good year, but never lose in a bad year. And it was the greatest thing that, you know, came out since sliced bread. And then the market crashed. And then the cost of options changed and insurance companies kind of learned their lesson because it kind of bit them in the rear. They were offering too much upside without protecting their own downside. And then this uh, stock market crash of 2000 kind of helped set the insurance industry straight where they could offer competitive products that weren't pie in the sky, weren't outrageous. But, you know, if you can make two or 3% on a CD, but they can make a six or 8%, you know, potentially on a on an index annuity that's just as safe and protected. And if you ever wanted to take a guaranteed income stream from it to where they just pay you monthly uh, when you retire for bills to pay or, or just extra income to have, you, you could set it up that way too. So, you know, when I finally went from the stock brokerage business, dialing for dollars, then to the insurance business, learning about other stuff, and then saying, you know what, there's a place for both of this. Why can't I do a little of each? And, you know, found out I had to work for an independent type firm that was more of a fiduciary that worked for the client, not for somebody that worked for companies. And then I had restrictions with the first company I went with. And after that, I said, you know, I can do this myself. I, I know both. I'm licensed in both. Let's just blend a plan that utilizes, uh, you know, the best of both of the worlds in the you know industry you know and since that time you know we've also learned that there's ways to invest in real estate you know that uh, aren't necessarily uh, securities either you can i mean people have rental portfolios and i don't trade real estate and i don't i'm not a broker but you know there's ways to diversify into different asset classes for different reasons and by the way if you don't want to you can own real estate without having to um, actually rent a property you can do uh, you know real estate investment trusts uh, I'm, I'm not a fan of very many of those unless they're publicly traded or unless they're legit well, I think the takeaway from our conversation here, Jeff, is that if you're looking for a financial advisor to sell you stocks and bonds and that's it, plenty of guys out there will do that. If you're looking for an insurance broker to sell you annuities, there are plenty of people who can do that. But if you're looking for a financial advisor who really has a lot of tools in the toolbox and doesn't rely on rules of thumbs, you're looking for Jeff Hogan here at Premier Retirement. Now, for those of you who want to sit down with Jeff, talk about your individual situation, find out where you are, and uh, design a plan to get you where you need to be in retirement, we're offering a no-cost, no-obligation, no-judgment financial consultation with Jeff. To get yours, call 520-780-9059. It's 520-780-9059. Again, no cost, no obligation for this. You can call that number this weekend, leave your name, your telephone number. Shelly will give you a call back here this coming week and set up a convenient time for you to talk to Jeff. Once again, that telephone number, 520-780-9059. You can also request your plan online at premret.com, P-R-E-M-R-E-T.com. Jeff, out of time for this week. Thank you for your time, but most importantly, I want to thank our listeners here in the greater Tucson area. For Jeff Hogan, I'm Jeff Shade. Have a great weekend. We'll talk to you again next week with another edition of Premier Retirement right here on 790 KNST, Tucson's 
most stimulating talk. Investment advisory services provided through Premier Wealth Advisors, LLC, an Arizona State Registered Investment Advisor. Securities transactions are placed through TD Ameritrade. Insurance and annuity products are offered through Premier Advantage, Inc., DBA Premier Retirement Planning and Wealth Management. Investing involves risk, including the potential loss of principal. Any reference to protection, safety, or lifetime income generally refer to fixed insurance products. Insurance guarantees are backed by the financial strength and claims paying abilities of the insurance carrier. The show is intended for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as advice or recommendations. Due to show format, accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Premier Retirement and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice and may only conduct business with residents of states and jurisdictions where they're properly registered.